I'm Peyton. This is the Rhizomatic Reader Podcast. You are listening to my unedited conversation with Shofei Han about Gareth Matthews' book, Philosophy and the Young Child, and Matthew Lippmann's book, Philosophy in the Classroom. You can find the shorter, edited version of this conversation on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play. Okay. Uh, just so that we have it. I'm I'm good. How are you? You're good? I'm good. Very good. In my break, in my new house, and in my new office, and has a lot of time just for read and write. And sleep. Oh, yes, that too. Because <laughs> who's had time to do that this year? You would have thought that a pandemic would give us time to sleep, but it didn't. Yeah. The overnight virtual preparation was crazy, time-consuming, stressful. What did you all do? Did you all go to school fully online this term? Or because you work at a magnet school, so what happened? We did all forms. We just switched back and forth. They just expect teachers can do whatever and get ready for the next day. So we started with fully virtual. Then we switched to hybrid, which is virtual and in-classroom thing that you have five equipments in front of you. So you can handle both students on the other side of the laptop and the students in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Then we went back to mostly in-person and dealing with new cases in different classrooms and different teachers got it and just being very stressful, but still continue teaching. So being through all kinds of the teaching forms in one semester. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Well, so, bless, bless all of you that are teaching in K-12 because I think it's actually harder it, it in, is hard. And in college, when you can just, I mean, it's still difficult teaching at the college level and flipping on a dime, but I think people are a little more capable of understanding why the shifts keep happening, though uh, that doesn't make it any easier. It's quite stressful, I will say. Yeah, I see you are wearing the LSU hoodie. Oh, yes. I needed to make sure that I was like fully in. You know, our where we were connected from. And now how purple. Look at ours. Which is a beautiful, it. a beautiful color of purple, a, a lavender color, I would say. Yeah. Is what you're wearing. And it's lovely. So, so I'm really glad that you put up with the fact that we were supposed to record this back in August. And then um, you know, we had hurricanes. <laughs> And and I stress the S on the end of that word. We had multiple hurricanes coming towards us. And you all, too. I think you all got hit by hurricanes. Oh, yeah. Actually. 500 hurricanes a year when we ran out of names for hurricanes. Yeah. It's just, it's insane. So we just scrapped the whole thing. And now we're back at the end of the year, which is a good time. It is. To talk about. Uh, these wonderful books and the ideas and everything. So like I said, this will be really just free flowing. Um, 
we'll, we'll kind of see where the conversation goes. I don't, just like we would in a philosophical dialogue, right? Isn't that what Lippmann and them tell us we should be doing? Right. So, um, and then uh, I'll edit it and uh, we'll produce about a 45 minute episode. Um, and then anyone who wants to hear anything that happens outside of that time can listen to the unedited version, which you agreed to have posted as well. So I'll post both versions when they're done. So it's exciting to talk to you about this stuff that I know you're so passionate about. I am, yes. And, and also personally, I feel like I need a dialogue. I need a dialogue to talk to people to have a space to reflect on what has happened this year because it's just been too much. And it challenged my worldview. It challenged my physical capacity. It also challenged my mental capacity to handle everything mm -hmm. this year, both what? in for my job and for what's going on outside. Mm -hmm. So I feel like this is a great way to end this year with a dialogue with my dear friend so yes. i'm excited to have this dialogue i have no expectations i don't know where we're going but that's kind of made me excited their uncertainties made me excited yeah absolutely i mean uh i'm excited to talk to you too the last time i was trying to think about this last night so I'm not imagining this, right? I did see you this year at curriculum camp, right? Okay. Yes, you are correct. Because I was like, I'm not making that up in my head, I don't think. I believe <laughs> that like one of the very last things that I was able to do in the pre-pandemic world was drive to Baton Rouge for curriculum camp. And I remember that we sat outside of the... Barnes and Noble, LSU bookstore. And we were able to have a long conversation that day, that afternoon with the nice sun, the spring sun. So it's kind of like we were meeting at like, you know, the first near the first day of spring. And of course, tomorrow is the solstice, which is my favorite day of the year is the winter solstice because it's the shortest day of the year. And I think it really helps us to reflect on what's going on because we can be in the dark and tomorrow's going to be that special solstice because you know Jupiter and Saturn are going to align for the first time in 825 years and you'll get to see that right at the sunset so I'm excited about all of this stuff that's happening um that's amazing it's amazing it's just amazing uh I I had also read I had uh, one of my uh former colleagues uh, from SHSU, who now works out in California. She's big into astrology, and she had told me that uh, the year 2020, according to astrologists, was supposed to be one of the worst years in human history. So things can only get better than up from here. So I feel like we went through it. <laughs> oh, that's nice. So I'm glad to hear that. You know what? Usually by the end of the year, I usually very gratitude of what I have been through, what I have got, what I have learned. And I usually have a few, not big, but a few hopes of what I want to do the next year. But this year is like, I don't have hope 
about the next year. I have to be honest. I like I don't want to be excited about anything I want or I look forward to or I expect. I just like I'm kind of scary to have hope at the at the end of this year. So I just want to be to enjoy the present rather than looking forward the next. So this is rare. I'm not happy about it, but I have to be honest of what what I'm thinking right now. So I'm glad to hear that 2020 is the worst. 2020 will be better. <laughs> yeah, I mean, of course, you know, the whole idea of a year anyway is an arbitrary construction, right? I mean, we we put a lot of stock into this idea that when the calendar rolls over and Two and a half weeks, or something, that somehow that's going to be like a fresh start, or whatever the case is.、Um, I don't. I don't necessarily put a lot of stock into that. I don't do things like New Year's resolutions or anything like that.、Uh, <laughs> no, because because I don't think that like just because December stops and we're in January that somehow we're going to be in a better space, but. Oddly, I do feel more hopeful about 2021 than I probably should. I don't know that we're going to get out of quarantine, or I don't know what's going to happen.、Um, but I'm not trying to look forward too much. I'm I am living in the present, and I think that I finally have settled into a space personally where like. It took many, many months to get over the angst and anxiety of not being able to go out and do things, and not to be able to see friends. And I don't know about you, but at the beginning of the pandemic, it was all this flurry of activity with like you know Zoom parties and social hours, and you know everyone trying to maintain their life as normal, quote unquote normal. Which I think has now largely faded out. I don't want to go to a Zoom happy hour because I'm tired of being on Zoom. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like、yes. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so in an odd way, it's like been actually really good to just be in the house with the dogs with my partner. When he's here, he has to go out and work, unfortunately, a lot. But,、um, and to just read books and think and listen to music and chill. That's all I've been like. I, I've even been on social media detox this whole month since December first, and、um, which I do every year, and I just love it. It's like I'm. I mean to ask you about this no social media month because I have been literally thinking of you and wondering what you were doing, you know. And I love this idea because you, when you were on social media, you were heavily on social media, like constantly. You will post stuff, share your ideas, thoughts, life, even. And for this month, you just all of a sudden disappeared. I was like, "Yeah, she must be in his peaceful cave and enjoying his own life." But what made you to make this decision? And like, is over. Well, it started several years ago when I used to 
do these things. I used to just take weekends off, like, and it wouldn't be all the time. It would just be like occasionally, maybe I would take a weekend off once a month or something. I would turn it off on Friday night, turn it back on on Monday. And I always found those weekends to be nice and enjoyable. And then for a couple of years, I used to do it just the last two weeks of December. So usually I would start it on the solstice, uh, which no was- No wonder which, you mentioned that specifically. Yeah. So I would start it on the solstice and then I would go through the new year, which is about a two-week period, right? A little less than two weeks. Um, well, this year I just decided that like, it's, it, it's been such an insane year that I decided I just didn't want to do social media at all in December. So I decided I'm just going to turn it all off and extend the period of time. And it's, it's really nice. Like you have, you, you do learn how, um, you do learn like how much you rely on social media to keep up with things. Uh, and you do also learn pretty quickly how much you actually are on your phone because like it, what I mean by that is you, I still notice like when there's a downtime, my first inclination is to grab my phone to go and check, you know, scroll through Instagram or scroll through Facebook or Twitter. Um, so you have to unlearn that, but you can unlearn it pretty quickly. And then you fill that time with things that are much better for you. I think in terms of, you know, I'm reading, you can read a lot more, uh, or you can listen to music and just listen to music, or you can catch up on podcasts, or you can literally just sit there and stare into space which we don't give ourselves times to do anymore. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I'm, I'm glad I you're know. thinking of me, but uh, all I'm really doing is like sitting in my room, reading books and, and thinking. Yeah. I mean, I, is it, oh, it shows the internet is unstable, but can you hear me still? Yep. You're good. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, since we're both fascinated about time, I would just, sometimes wonder my screen showed up. Sometimes it's five hours or six hours a day, even it's including me listening to music or YouTube or whatever, but scary. Like there are 12 or 15 hours or eight hours maximum we are awake and there are five or six hours we were on the phone. And I was like, that's not, a good way for my time or from, for myself because whenever I'm on my phone I feel like my mind is occupied by something else I don't feel myself I don't concentrate on my own mind it was just everywhere all the thinking or all the reading is so superficial and I don't do thinking during those times so I was like that inspired me to want to do mine, like no social media time for two it? weeks. I want to do it. Should I? You really should. I mean, you should prepare people if they rely on social media to like be in touch with you, that you're going to do it. Mm -hmm. But I do think that it's like, 
it's like worthy of of the time to actually just take the time off. It doesn't mean you're not going to use your phone, by the way, because like, you know, I still am, I still check the news. I still listen to my podcasts and all that kind of stuff. But I don't know if you do this, but I, I've even noticed that like, you know, sometimes I would be listening to a podcast and scrolling through social media at the same time. And I do too. And that's not good because then I'm not actually listening. I was making one of the most important decisions of this year. <laughs> we got disconnected. <laughs> it's okay. We're going to just pick up right where we left off. Uh, I was like, oh, we froze up and we're back. So, yeah. Tell me so about your most important decision. Hello again. <laughs> What's up? You know, it's hard to make a decision. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess you know the universe is just reminding me are you sure you sure you want to do this <laughs> <laughs> you do for sure for sure I hope it was recorded but I do want to say it one more time so yeah say it, say it again because I don't think it got recorded actually so inspired from you and our conversation just happened and I decided to have a two-week no social media break start from tomorrow, December 21st. The solstice. You're going to love yes. it. Yes, I believe so. I do feel like I need a mental healing period, which reading is one of it but as we just said if you are on social media you cannot really completely focused on the reading or even listening to the broadcast or even just doing your stuff so i'm so glad it's it's you're gonna you're gonna find it to be so hard at first depending on how much you use social media but you'll find it to be therapeutic and just like You'll, you'll have a different, I mean, I know you're interested in time. You'll have a much different experience with time in that two-week period, especially because it's the shortest days of the year. You know, this is right. Tomorrow will be the shortest day of the year, and then we'll slowly start tilting our way back towards the sun, which is pretty amazing. Um, but I love the shortest day of the year. That's amazing. I feel like most people love the day of the year because you get to do more. Um, but you like the shortest day. As you mentioned, like you like the darkness of the day. Yeah, I like, I don't know why, but I think that I'm really actually nocturnal or, or something. You know, like I, I much prefer evening and, and night than I do daytime. I find daytime to be very difficult sometimes. I'm not a vampire or anything like that, but <laughs> but I do enjoy like I just enjoy how nighttime lets you think differently because nighttime seems to be so much more quiet. 
I definitely agree with that. Um, I used to like nighttime more, and I felt myself more when I had more nighttime. But from work, since I have to get up really early in the morning, I'm I'm not a morning person. I get really stressed at night. I have to go to sleep early. Sometimes I go to sleep at nine in order to be, in order to have the full energy for the kids. Because for teaching their younger kids, you're not only teaching, you're kind of entertaining them, to encouraging them, to being active for different kind of learning activities in order to make learning happen in the environment. So that just like, I feel like it just consumes more energy that I sleep a lot. <laughs> So that I don't have time just on my own as much as I used to to do something like reading or just staring or just sitting by my desk to feel it, you know. So, um, yeah, I definitely agree. Time makes me me. <laughs> well, then this is a good time for you to do it because you don't necessarily have to go to bed at nine o'clock for the next couple of weeks, right? Because you're out of school. Right. Yeah. So, you know, test it out. Let me know how it goes. Um, I, oh, okay. So I have been having this habit of keeping journal for years until I started digital journals for a few months. And then that ruined my habit of keeping journals because the digital journaling, like I would keep writing for you uh, month then something happened or I just don't feel like to log into the laptop to write down something so I will stop then I will come back so it doesn't continue anymore and then I go back to this journal thing um but not daily it's really like weekly reflection on the journal so I feel like I'm going to journal this process of no social media and how life goes and that's another way to help me go back to my journal by the way, do you like my new journal? <laughs> it's full of books. I love that. And, you know, I don't know if you ever remember this, but, you know, several years ago, I don't know if it's this one or if it's the other one. It must be the other one. But several years ago, you know, I keep these little journals uh, of like things that I quotes, things that I, I, I keep my notes on podcasts and stuff in these little journals. Don't you remember, like, this was way back when I was leaving LSU. Uh, I think that I gave you one of these journals because I remember that, like, there's like a half signature thing or something. Yes, yes. Because we, like, I signed over and, them. Yes. Mine purple, too. And we signed our signature together. So in your book, you have half of our signature and my book has the other half. Oh, how would you find it? That was fun. We have to bring that together. Yeah, the purple one actually is over there on my bookshelf, which means it's been nice. built up for a couple of years. So, so um, you know, one of the questions I always try to ask people is to talk to me about their reading life, the history of their reading life. I'm, I'm just, I'm genuinely curious about how people think about that topic or what they reflect on when they start to think about how they would tell me about the history of their reading life. 
That's a good question because people barely ask me that question. Uh, I mean, even arts, we talk about our area-related readings when we were at LSU, but we never got a chance to talk about my whole reading life or your whole reading life, which I'm going to ask you later. <laughs> but for my reading life, uh, I don't really remember much for elementary school. Middle school was crazy. I, I was so energetic in middle school. So I would wake up at four o'clock in the morning, read until six or seven, then go to school. Then I would stay up late to read. Um, I didn't have a spe specific preference at middle school. So I would read what I can find. I was just addicted to reading. Um, it just seems like my middle school teachers didn't require a lot of readings and I was kind of feel desperate to read. I just want to read. So a lot of time for wild reading. And high school reading, I think was very important for me. It kind of like see the world, if I can say this way. Um, high school was a very military-based system school that I don't have much free time. So our schedule is from 6, 6 in the morning until 10 p.m. at night. We all stay on campus. It's a boarding school. So we have probably 11 to 13 a day that I was so hard to with and so hard to focus. Um, so, but the good thing is we had a time which is required for every student that we have to go back to the dorm and to take, even if you're not sleepy, you have to stay in your bedroom and uh, just to sleep. Um, so usually I would just hide in my bed, um, read a lot of books, and I read a few. Oh, I read it's from a female author. Her name is Sam Mao. I'm not sure whether you know her, but she is a, a writer from Taiwan, and she moved to Desert to live with her husband for years, and she talked about the life there. So for me, back in high school, that was like a completely new world that I was like, wow, okay. So the world is not only my high school life right now with so many testing, so many classes. All what I, what I did was like school related. That just kind of broadened my worldview of like, there's a wide world out there. So I would say my high school reading was more like, give me a space to imagine, to think beyond what I was doing at school. Uh, and then college and grad school, I studied about philosophical I wasn't sure it's because my internet here or it just zoom itself. So I switched to the living room. Hopefully it will be better.
yeah, it's all it's all good. I think that sometimes the internet's not great. Uh, it just cuts in and out, so uh, it should be okay. Okay, so so you were so you were saying where where it got cut off was you were saying uh, something about in high school or no, you were saying in in college and graduate school. Yes. So started from college, I started to really interested about kind of like some heavy topic books, either it's novel or it's theory or philosophy or psychology books. I just like specifically fascinating about the books talk about human beings, like our mind, our thinking, what's the meaning of life, how life is supposed to be. Uh, what if so and so? What's the meaning of death? I just like starting from college. I specifically fascinated about those, and I started to talk to think about the questions of the meaning of life. What if I die tomorrow? What I want to do today, or what if I die in three months? What I want to do now? From like the last year of high school, then the first year of college, I thought a lot about those questions, and that's when I started to read a lot about the theory and the philosophy of those books and then eventually um a i just choose to do psychology as my major in college and then i switched to curriculum theory um which deals more about you know the curriculum theory and also the philosophy and then eventually when i came to lsu i, I was still fascinating about the theory and philosophy <laughs> so yeah um I think I'm, it's I'm, all connected. Yeah, of course. I'm, but I'm curious. Uh, well, two questions really. Uh, to go back, just a little bit to like you when you were talking about middle school and high school, you said that like you felt in middle school like they didn't give you a lot of reading assignments. How did you even become fascinated by reading? Because you said you would just do a lot of reading on your own. That was just something that, was it like a family thing or you just figured out that you liked reading? What was it about it that hmm. drew you to do that in middle school? That is a good question because my family, they don't read a lot. So I'm probably the only one who read back then when I was a kid. Um, I guess I feel like there is a connection for me between trees and books. Mm. Um, my hometown and my house, no, my, my parents' house is in an area where we are by the very end of the neighborhood. And behind their house was a bunch of trees. It's like a small forest. And there, those river went through the trees and my day started from I walked to the river to wash my face, to stay there just to watch the sunrise and to hear uh, the sound of the water and their bird chips. Then I just walked back to have breakfast. I just feel like those and also the texture of the book. I feel like those are naturally connected for me. 
So whenever, and I had a lot of time back then, my middle school was just easy. <laughs> I had a lot of time. So usually I would just stay by the river or stay in the trees, grab a book to read. And when I cannot do that during the school days, I just feel like whenever I touch the book, I feel connected to like to the trees, to the nature. And also in Chinese, in Mandarin, the word of um, books is shu and the word of trees is shu. So they actually have the same pronunciation, just the different tone and different characters. Um, and also, as we all know, the paper was made from wood. So I just feel like that connection just touched me from the very beginning. So I don't even know why I just feel like naturally connected probably. It's, it's in my environment, how I grew up, how I interacted with the nature a lot, um, just made me feel naturally connected to the texture of the book, the smell of the book and the space. When you open the book, you feel like all of a sudden you fell into that peaceful space that's nothing else is related to you. It's all you have is the world in the book. That was fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So then, um, I love the thing about the woods. Uh, we've spent a lot of time in our friendship talking about our connections to trees. Cause yeah. I think we both grew up in a place. I didn't have a forest behind me, but we had this kind of wooded area where I would go and spend time. And then there was like a, a creek and stuff, uh, in a park down the road. So that was always very nice to go and spend time there. Um, so in college, you said towards the end of high school, college, you started getting interested in these questions about larger philosophy and theory questions. How did that come about? As you ask me now, well, I never really thought about why I specifically interested in those books, but as you ask me now, I feel like it's related to my high school system. It was just like so strict. It's like, mm. I'm not kidding, it's a military based. And the, the principal even addressed that as something he was proud of. It's like, we are training you to be efficient. So I can just give you an example. It's like in the morning, for example, if there's time to get up at six o'clock, nobody can get up before six. So once the alarm is off, then we start to dress up and use bathroom, do all the things you need to do. And then you go to the, we all gather in the playground. So I could finish all those in five to seven minutes. And even just walk from the building, the dome building to the playground is probably, if you walk, it's probably three minutes walking. So we can just do all those in such short time. And we had such long time of, studying i mean I, I don't know whether study really happened but a lot of time in the class i just feel like those times probably made me feel so dehumanized and i started to question about so is this where i supposed to be like 95 percent of the time is in the classroom i have no time to have fun no time to hang out with friends no matter to see like to drink or you know to get drunk as other the other like my friends when they mentioned it's like that's not part of my life so 
I kind of feel like probably that was the reason. I just feel like that space was so closed. It made me question. It made me want to dig out and to find out the meaning of life. It's like, if this is not what I like, how life supposed to be? Um, why we exist? What is the purpose of Earth existing in the world? Because I don't think staying in the classroom all day, every day was supposed to like life supposed to be because even back then, I spent a lot, lot of time just staring at the clouds when I had time. Mm-hmm. And when it rained, I don't use I didn't use umbrella at all. I just walked in the rain and everyone was running and I choose to walk because I feel like that was one of the little free time I had. I want to enjoy the gift from the nature, which is the rain, which was a surprise and also was a gift for me. So I was like, oh, that's amazing. I want to have more freedom like that, like the cloud, like the rain, the snow, the flowers. So I guess that was how it started. I like I started to to question and be interested. About so what? So what were you reading in college that helped you to like start to think about those things? You you were a psychology major, but. Hmm. Uh, there is one author. He's Chinese, but his name is Shi Tiesheng, um, spelled as S H I T I E S H E N G. So he is an author that writes a lot about life, also through some some of his stories. Um, he is. He's a philosopher, in, or he's a he's, novelist, he's, or he's a novelist. Okay, he's a novelist. He's fiction writer. Uh-huh. Right. Uh huh. Right. He's a novelist, but he writes. I think he mainly writes nonfiction novels. He talks about the life um, back in his uh, time was nineteen fifties, sixties, seventies, and he talks about uh, he talks a lot about the ironic perspective of the society of the reality that most people may probably not dare to say so or is not brave enough to talk about how you really feel during some embarrassing moment or some, mm. you know, not positive moment. And he was, he was so brave and so in-depth talking about those moments in life, which is real. We all have to deal with that, right? It's, so I, mean, I feel like that was um, fascinating. By the way, in my reading, I prefer nonfiction fiction reading a lot. I just like when hmm. people talk about the strong, heavy, real stories in real life more than the fictions. Um, I don't know why, but partially because I didn't read a lot of fictions when I was a kid. I didn't have much resources. So when I started to, when, when, when I can buy books, I probably didn't have a lot of options to read fictions as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then you, uh, you switched over to curriculum theory and then you ended up taking all these philosophy classes at LSU. Yes. And you found, what did you find in those areas that you thought was particularly important to unpacking these questions you had about life? 
Yeah. Um, so when I started curriculum and instruction or curriculum studies, at first, what attracted me is how the child think. And I learned a lot about, you know, when we learn curriculum and instruction, at first, you learn a lot about the teaching strategies, the classroom management, and all the settings and all the different kind of educators, what's their um, theory, what are their thoughts. But for me, that was not enough. I was like, okay, you asked me, you told me like uh, student-centered pedagogy is better. I want to know why it's better. And then you quote this educator and tell me he said so, so it's better. I was like, why it's better? What theory he based on, you tell me is that. So it's like, what's going on or what we were reading in education, just, I was not that, I was not satisfied. I was like, that not, that's not enough. That's not, that didn't answer my question. Then I keep just digging in to see what philosopher they read, what specific, specific philosophical theory they were drawing on. So I just keep digging and digging and eventually I found philosophy and actually, you know, many educators, their theory are heavily drawn in from philosophy. I feel like when I came to the philosophy side, I feel like, oh, okay, now I understand where many of the educational theories come from. And I also understand like, that's not all because a, philo a philosophical theory or even a concept is so rich. The theory we learned in education was probably the interpretation of those educators we read, but there's still more possibilities of interpretation that I can do, everyone can do, and to keep thinking about those concepts. So at that point, I feel like I finally reached to an uncertain point that I can keep packing and thinking and pondering instead of reaching to a certain point with the definition, with the category and with the answer. So that philosophical uncertainty made me comfort. I feel yeah. like this is what I was looking for. I wasn't looking for specific answer. I was looking for concepts to ponder. I was looking for theory to think with, to come out with my own thinking or to find the specific inspirations for myself. Um, mm. And that's when I found philosophy was where I, <laughs> I want to be. Well, yeah, I mean, one of the things that I thought was really, I'll say sad while I was reading these two books that you had us read was this idea that they both seem to suggest that children are naturally inquisitive and curious and that society and the education system specifically beats out of them their inquisitiveness, right? So that by the time you become an adult, you have absolutely no interest whatsoever in asking philosophical questions. And in fact, you shy away from them because you find these questions to be frightening, scary, because there's not an answer. 
And I just found that so sad. And yet I see it every day in my own classroom. I see it every single freaking day with college students that they have no imagination, no, no desire to know anything beyond what's on the test or what, what do you need me to write in the paper or what's going to get me the maximum number of points or what's the right answer rather than when I try to say to them, as we were trained to do at LSU, and I think LSU is like a unique place in doing this, by the way, but uh, rather than saying, no, I don't know what the answer is. And actually, I'm not interested in the answer. I'm interested in the question and the process of questioning. Mm -hmm. There's not a question there. It's just mostly like a you know, I, I don't know if you think about that at all, but that was just one thing that stood out to me about the two books you chose was this idea that, you know, we, we really just don't have any sort of philosophical inquiry at all in our society. Yeah, I, as I choose those two books, well, the title is Philosophy and the Young Child, but I do feel like this book is so necessary even for higher education is because you know some principle or some ideas is just so fundamental that i feel like all educators need to be aware of including parents as well mm -hmm. need to be aware that how much the kids can do and how less we know about the kids and how much wrong definitions and the strategies and the research conclusions we believed about child, about how we should educate them. So that's why I feel like those two books, well, they're not really popular. Those two books are not popular, I believe. And also philosophy for children is such a, how to say it, definitely not popular research area. Um, as far as I know in the United States, um, Hawaii, Washington DC and probably somewhere in uh, Texas as well did the philosophy for children program at some schools but it's definitely not at any more many schools and also philosophy for children some people use it as like some people call it philosophy for children course but for me I feel like that's how we're supposed to think <laughs> it's just a way of thinking um, but we just believe it's really important to start from very young. As you said, if you don't give their children the chance to ask questions and to appreciate their questions, eventually when they go to college, they don't have interest at all. And they don't even, some students don't even have the ability to ask a good question. If they ask them, when you ask them like, do you have any questions? They don't other than when is this project due and how many words I need, how many pages, double space or single space? That is sad. How did you even find these books? Why, why did you choose these two books? Because, you know, you're broadly interested in this idea of teaching philosophy to children, but also philosophies of childhood. So these two books in particular are important for what reason? 
First, I think these two books are very fundamental in philosophy for children. So the author, Gareth Matthews and um, Matthew Lipman, they are the two fundamental authors in the area of philosophy for children. Um, so it's like without them, there's no such area. Well, there will be some other person will start this area, but uh, as of now, the other two fundamental person in starting this area. And also um, the two kind of interpret or start this area in two different perspectives. As you can tell from the title, this one is philosophy and the young child. So Matthews basically try to look at the child and childhood from a philosophical perspective. So people usually call this philosophy of child or philosophy of childhood is of in the middle. And this book is more like bring philosophy to children. So it's philosophy for children. So uh, Lipman talk about principles, strategies, ideas of how to conduct more specific, no, more accurate, I think is how to continue children's philosophical mm. thinking <laughs> because they already have it there. But these are just some ideas, strategies of how to not kill their philosophical thinking by you know, creating the rich space, by be aware of how meaningful their questions are. Um, so from two perspectives, I think those two authors are really fundamental. And also I just feel like it's so fascinating and sad when we look at the questions the young kids brought up and the questions our college students bring up. Like the first page of this book which I have a quote on. Yeah, this. read the quote, read the quote that you've selected here. Okay, so this is, uh, this is a, a child, his name is, I'm not sure whether it's his or her name is Tim. She, he is, let's just consider that's a boy, about six years, while busily engaged in licking a pot, asked, Papa, how can we be sure that everything is not a dream? <laughs> and if you keep going there are a few other questions that's amazing too so a boy is eating an apple and he's saying this apple is not alive because it's not on the tree and we started having the conversation the boy said oh well um it's probably still alive when the apple was on the ground, but it's not until it was in the store or in the room. So the boy started to questioning what does life mean? But when we talk about groceries, we talk about, oh, look at those apples. They are so fresh and they are good for you. So we, we talk about it and how the kids think about it. It's just fascinating. They already started to think about the what does life mean in their life and they also talk about the end of the world or where do i come from and where i'm going apparently that's the the, the question of death 
in philosophy, and they were fascinated about those questions. But our college students no longer interested. And I also remember when I came to the U.S., there were a few times in the coffee shop, people started to chat with me, and they asked me, "What's your major?" I said, "Philosophy." They were like, "Oh, okay, interesting." And there's nothing after that, you know. Well, you know, it's it, it's it's very again like again that's something I thought was very sad about the books was that they were both of the authors were clear that we kind of like beat these beat this inquisitive nature out of children through our our schooling process and like one way that you can look at the Lipman book is you can really see it that they're trying to set up an argument because it's it's multiple authors in that book but they're trying to set up an argument about educational reform right and mm -hmm. and that's how the book is actually framed i mean even the, the the first appendix is actually called you know the reform of teacher education and it's about this idea that you know oh actually we couldn't do any of this stuff that we just talked about for the last 200 pages unless we reform teacher education but we we can talk about that later if we want to um i guess what i was going back to like the matthews text and this, this quote that you pulled out, how can we be sure that it's not all just a dream? I feel like, you know, he goes through and he explains how he would reason with the child to try to dissect what the limits are of understanding the dream state versus the living state, right? And I think it's in that book that he, has this great chapter where he uh, critiques Piaget, for example, and says like, you know, Piaget, the sort of like penultimate child psychologist, child development person that we all learn about if we're in education, you know, was not interested in these questions that kids would ask. He would, he would see a question of like, how can we not know that everything is just a dream as indication of someone being not quote unquote developed. But Matthews is saying, no, that is like a really profound question. And as I was reading the book, I, I was having like these, all of these, you know, floods of, of thinking about like, well, yeah, what does that mean? Why haven't we talked about that, right? Like it's it's not, it's not easy to understand if something is real or if it's a dream. It's not easy if you've had a dream that's so vivid that you feel like you've experienced it to understand the, when you're in a state of consciousness, awake consciousness. It's not so clear sometimes that that wasn't a real thing that happened to you. Why mm -hmm. wouldn't we talk about that with children? Yeah, I mean, those are great questions. And what is the name of your podcast again? Rhizomatic Reader. Rhizomatic Reader, right. I love, we all love that word, rhizome, rhizomatic. Um, and they don't use the word rhizome, but I'm pretty sure when they consider the concept of child or childhood, they are really in the rhizomatic perspective of considering child and childhood. That's why they're so like they criticize about Piaget about the different developing stages. It's just like 
there's so less we know about child, but we mainly just conceptualize child or childhood from their developmental theory um, as the major tool we use to quote unquote understand child, but more in so is misunderstanding child <laughs> from the cognitive development point. Because, you know, probably, you know, at the very beginning, when the kids ask all those hard questions or questions with no specific answers or questions like too big to give a answer or one answer, I think that is the body without organs as Deleuze and Guattari talks about, that is where the thinking starts to grow. That is where we don't know where we are going, but we just have so many questions pondering our mind. And the next step is you seize those moments and you reason with the children. You ask a few more questions to follow up of, oh, really? So why do you think that way? What are your reasons? What do you think? You think this is real or not real? What are your reasons? And to follow up with, after they see the reason, so do you think this is consistent with what you just said before? Mm -hmm. And then follow up with, do you have any new ideas? You feel controversial to what's your, the ideas you had before? So eventually the kids grow or build their own way of thinking. And that is very important. So we have those big questions like, what is life? What is time? But eventually we all know that there's no specific answer. It is like when we develop our value system or our worldview is we develop how we interpret or we understand this concept with our own ways of reasoning uh, and also thinking of it and also to defend of it if we have someone question or have someone try to dialogue with us, if we believe so and so, we need to have our own reason, right? And also we need to keep reasoning it to question what we believed is still like acceptable based on our reasoning system or our thinking system, or we need to be more aware of the new ideas so we can reflect on our own thoughts. So for me, I feel like it all depends on how we deal with or how we consider about the very starting point. So do you consider the starting point when the kids have no answer as the point of lacking of or not knowing, or you consider that as reach of possibilities to grow to themselves? So I feel like that is so um fundamental in education and that's why when i had the chance to teach either at high school or at elementary school i choose to teach at elementary school um kind of like try to save not save is probably too too much but try to catch those precious moments questions thinking before they disappear if that, that makes sense, or if I can do anything to protect the kids' thinking, um, to, pro to, to 
probably just even to listen or dialogue with them about their thinking at that stage. So, so they have a few seeds that will eventually grow in their mind. Yeah, I mean, one of, you know, I pulled out so many quotes um, and I just think that like, you know, two quotes that really stand out to me right here. Uh, these are both from the Lippmann book. One is on page 60. And the quote is, our culture characteristically defines intelligence in terms of the ability to answer questions rather than the ability to ask them, end quote. And, you know, going back to this idea of the, the you know, you're, you use the word save, and I, I think that that's an appropriate word because I, I was really struck by the use of the concept of wonder in the early part and throughout the Lippmann book, uh, this idea that like what philosophy really is, is nothing more than us asking these really hard questions that don't have answers necessarily, or that have multiple answers or multiple ways to think about them, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I, I promise I'm making a point here, but this quote on page 31 from Lippmann is, you know, that many adults have ceased to wonder because they feel there is no time for wondering or because they have come to the conclusion that it's simply unprofitable and unproductive to engage in reflection about things that cannot be changed. Many adults have never had the experience of engaging in wondering and reflecting that somehow made a difference in their lives. And the, the point is this, I was very frustrated earlier this semester I, I teach master's level and doctoral level students, as you know. And we were engaging a book, uh, Ibram Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And we were, the idea behind what I was trying to get the students to do in the class was, I was trying to get people to think like, okay, there are these ways that, the world is structured now that have certain outcomes. And Kendi talks about this as either racist or anti-racist. Um, mostly everything is racist. So if we want to imagine an anti-racist world, we have to start with, with imagination. We have to be able to like think something different into being, right? Which is part of what I think philosophy does is it helps us to have the wherewithal to say like, well, what would it look like if it was not this way, but it was this way? This is one of the points that the books make, that both books make, that's really impactful is that like when a child asks a question that to us seems nonsensical, it's not to kill the question. It's to try to get them to think about, well, what if that were the case? How does that work? And maybe it's a perfectly rational and reasonable thing that the child is trying to work their way through that could lead to some different outcome rather than us just saying like we do as adults, no, that's not the way things are. There's no possible way for it to be any way different. The point I'm trying to make is that like I couldn't get my students in most cases to make the cognitive jump in imagination 
all they could do was see the way things are. And every time we would come up with a potential solution, they would say, well, it can't possibly be that way because of this, 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 and this thing, right? And so they were rationalizing away all of these potential solutions that to me was like, that's not imaginative. It's not philosophical for you to be thinking that way. And I don't know, I was like, where, where's the disconnect? These mm -hmm. two books help me see where the disconnect is. The disconnect is that in education, we beat that out of them. I mean, maybe I shouldn't use the word beat. We've, <laughs> because it's a violent term, right? Uh, ocean, ocean, ocean Vaughn. Well, even kill is a, have you ever heard Ocean Vaughn speak about uh, the way that language influences? O ocean Vaughn says, no. you know, that our language is ocean. ocean Vaughn. He wrote a book okay. a few years ago that you should read called um, On Earth We Are Briefly Gorgeous. Oh, well, love the title. Okay. But in, in many of, I, I saw him talk in Houston a few years ago. And one of the things that he talked about was he said, you know, language is so powerful. If you ever, if you ever stop and listen to your language, you'll see that so much of our language is non-imaginative because it all uses metaphors of death. And so he, he started talking these things off, right? He's like, oh, we, you know, I beat the hell out of that other team. I killed it. You know, we killed it. We like all these types of things that are really words that are rooted in a certain imaginary around death, violence, and destruction. And he says, what would happen to our culture if we shifted our language to one that was more peaceful or creative? Anyway, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. side tangent. Um, yeah. So I just, you know, I do think that like, we've got to do something about that in education. Mm -hmm. And it just made me think as I was reading, you know, philosophy, when, when you say that students, when you say that you said that you were a philosophy major and people were like, oh, okay, of course. Nobody takes philosophy courses because they think it's too hard. They think it's not, they think it's not gonna get them a job in the capitalist enterprise. So why should I think about a concept like what is time? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think what you just said inspired me to I have a few that I want to see. But before I forget, I'm going to briefly list them out. So when I go too far, drag me back. Okay. First thing I want to respond is, you know, when your students, uh, when you were struggling that the students don't have much to say or to think beyond what they know right now. Um, on page 112 of the Lipman book, I think that's a, a good way to kind of think about it. That's my first point. Second is what I want to continue is what you said about why the students or the people don't value philosophy in general that largely will, you know, I will blame, uh, not blame, but largely due to the education or the schooling system, because in the schooling system, if you have a question mark rather than the answer, you get zero. If you have too many questions, you are too talkative, you get an X on your contact paper. So yeah, we can, we can go a lot from there that way as well. And also 
the the ability to develop your your way of thinking. Um, I think that that Lipman has a beautiful discussion on dialogue on page one o seven that we can go and could I mean to talk about uh, some close point as well. So that's I feel like that's fascinating. That's where the dialogue like. The meaning of dialogue. Why? Why don't we start from the dialogue? Because I really okay. love that quote. Because before you, before you shared your thoughts, I didn't think about this. But because of this, and I start to think. So that one of my favorite quotes in this Lipman book is on page twenty-four, I believe. Mm-hmm. Dialogue is one stage of that awkward and gross. Processing of experience that must take place if raw experience is to be converted into refined expression for children. At only rate, at any rate, dialogue is an indispensable phase of the process. And also on page twenty-two,、mm-hmm. at the last second paragraph, very often when people engage in dialogue with one another. They are compelled to reflect, to concentrate, to consider alternatives, to listen closely, to give careful attention to definitions and meanings, to recognize previously unthought of options, and in general, to re to perform a vast number of mental activities that they might not have engaged in had their conversation never occurred. So I just feel like that's fascinating. How the dialogue between us just made me think more, and also how dialogue in our classroom, either is in elementary K to twelve or is in higher education, will help us so much more. Because in dialogue, you are quote unquote pushed to think more, but in an informal way. And also in an inspiring way, because before the dialogue started, there are a lot of things that you like, as he says, like unthought of options that will pop up during the dialogue. And also, there will be different perspectives that made you think of, because in the dialogue you listen and you are aware of the others. And I think、uh, one of the one of the thing. Or the the beauty of philosophy for children, as Lipman and Matthews talk about, is philosophy for children will make people be aware of the others. Be aware of the others means be aware of the difference. Be aware of the difference means you're going to think beyond your own thinking. So I think that is kind of respond to what you talk about when the students cannot really use you use the word imagination. And I will probably like cannot really think differently than the already thinking, and I think this philosophy for children dialogue will will do a lot. And also, it started from a very simple principle. So I can describe how a philosophy for children session、um, happened. Like we we started with five or six very simple steps, but each step will nurture very Important characteristics of thinking in the children's life. For example, we started with I. So, you, 
So you ha we have a question to discuss, right? And whoever is going to speak, we will say, I agree or disagree of what either in the question said or the previous question, the previous speaker said. So this step, usually many people will skip just to say, I think so and so and so. But in philosophy for children, we ask the children to say, I agree or disagree who said so and so first because of so and so. This step is helping the children to be aware of the others, what he said, what she said, you agree or disagree, what are your reasons before you talk about your own thoughts and thinking. So that little simple practice, if you continue doing it, they will be more aware of the others and they will be more aware of listening rather than expressing their own feelings, their own thoughts, mm -hmm. opinions mm -hmm. themselves. Think about if we have 10 kids sit around and after a loop, everyone you know, will be aware of what the others said because I have to see whether I agree or disagree. So eventually that dynamic of the dialogue will be richer and the real, or we said a good discussion will eventually happen as Liebman talked about. Yeah, a good I think- discussion. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. one of the things I was going to say was like, you know, they, they do emphasize the dialogue part so much. And, you know, probably before, well, this is probably about the same time. But like I said earlier, I felt like they were advocating for an educational reform away from banking education and towards dialogic education, right? Which now we associate so much with Paulo Freire and other people. But Another thing that they were talking about in that chapter on how to create a dialogue, or I think it's something like, you know, how to facilitate a good dialogue or something is, and, and, and you have to remember this, because I think as a teacher, as a professor, you sometimes can get frustrated if you feel like a, if you feel like class didn't go well, right? Like, oh, that wasn't a good dialogue, right? Like, uh, you get frustrated and you, yeah. you get angsty and you, and you yeah. know, because you, you know, in your head what you want to have happen. But one of the things that they were talking about in the book that I thought was really informative for me was just this idea of dialogue also happens in the reflective period after the dialogue that like, ch you know, children or, and I think adults too, I don't think any of this is like, the, pur the purview of just children, even though that's way the way it's framed. But you go home after a dialogue and you think more about what was said in class and that's continuing the dialogue internally. Or maybe you go and you talk about it with someone else at home, right? What did you talk, like when parents ask their kids, what did you learn at school today? What did you talk about at school today? Those those are part of the dialogic process that I think we often leave unaccounted in education because it didn't happen in the controlled space of the classroom environment. So I, or, or like they, they also say, you know, sometimes people don't contribute, but that doesn't mean that they're not contributing because they're listening and they're processing what everybody has to say. So I thought all of those things 
were really important takeaways of that particular chapter on like how to facilitate a dialogue and to understand that it happens in an ongoing fashion as opposed to just like a time stamped, you know, here's when we had the dialogue, it's over, it's never going to happen again. Mm-hmm. I love it. Dialogue happens after dialogues. And that's how we activate their students thinking. It's like, for example, in the classroom, you know, we, we have been criticized about this lecture-centered teaching, either in K-12 or higher education. Mm-hmm. And so once we start the dialogue, even if we only have 10 minutes of the dialogue, that will benefit a lot because of the reason you just said, dialogues happen after dialogue. So even we just had 10 minutes in class, but that opens up the space and they will keep pondering on what we talk about in the classroom. And I'm pretty sure after our conversation today, tonight, I will have so much more ideas like, oh, I should have talked about that. And I have, <laughs> you know, so that's, that's the beautiful part of the dialogue. It's just like, it just, activate and generate more thoughts and ideas so that's why I feel like to have this open dialogue is so important and also how to facilitate a good dialogue is not easy and a lot of um, part like is first probably started from professors teachers like how we facilitate the questions and I found it's very interesting that he gave a few examples of what questions looks good but not necessarily a good question to facilitate or to mm-hmm. encourage thinking. For example, the question we usually ask, um, what is your opinion on this matter? Very common question, right? What are your beliefs on this topic? Do you agree with what has been said? That's very general. And also it could be answered in one sentence or two without a lot of thinking. So instead, um, Lipman suggests in the philosophical discussion, ask questions like this instead. What reasons do you have for saying that? Why do you agree or disagree on that point? What do you mean by that expression? How are you defining the term you just used? Because we use the concept for granted, but how you define it specifically is what you were saying now consistent with what you said before. Mm-hmm. Because usually a lot of debating, especially the political debating recently, if we continue a reasoning process, no more than three rounds, many of the you know, debates or statements will prove themselves wrong because it's just not consistent with what the previous said or not consistent with the evidence. So those questions are like, can you clarify that remark when you said that just what is implied by your remarks and what alternatives are there to search a formulation? So by those questions, you will make or kind of push the student to think more because in order to come out with the why, they need to think, think, really think of why or what are my reasons and how this point is consistent to what I just said before. So that will facilitate a deeper thinking from the beginning of how do you think of this matter? So I think asking those questions is very important too, other than you know the kids themselves have the ability of thinking 
And also it's like, like today's dialogue, I love the questions you asked me because that made me think something I never really thought of. And also some questions is like, it's a good question. I never had the time or the space to really think about it. But because of your good question and it, I came out with a lot of things I was not aware of, I think that's the beauty of a good discussion. Uh, as Liefman said here, a good discussion is when mind meet. It's not necessarily meeting words. It's not necessarily spoken. It, it could be silent. It could be someone listen to our podcast after and they feel, yeah, aha, right, exactly. So no matter what form it is, a good discussion is when the minds meet. So I feel like that's a point that teachers need to be aware. Some students didn't say anything. Some students didn't say much in classroom, but instead they give a good response paper. I think that that should be, you know, think of in a holistic, holistic perspective, what is a good discussion? It's not only like, oh, everyone shares their thoughts. Everyone shares their comments. Everyone talks. That's not a good discussion. That's just a, how do you say it? That's just everyone saying it. It's just a discussion, not even discussed not much. A, yeah. Well, actually, like the idea behind the podcast, if you listen to the pilot episode, and I spent years thinking about this before I finally dove in, was that, I, I mean, there are many tendrils to it, right? Many rhizomes. But at its most basic level, what one of the things that I'm trying to do is to bring people, I say bring people into conversation who normally would not be in conversation. And also to try to bring books and ideas into conversation that normally wouldn't be uh, brought together. So like what I imagine happening long term, it's already started to happen, is that you know, two books or two dialogues or conversations that I've had with people that you think this book has nothing to do with this book. You might be able to like put those two books together and actually have a really rich thinking experience about a set of issues that you normally would not think about because you wouldn't think to bring those things together, which is why like, yeah, so that's kind of the idea behind the whole project in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And I've already read so many books, like you're the seventh episode. Every book or set of books that I've read now is all stuff I never read before. That's awesome. Like <laughs> I, I definitely listened to the pilot episode and I just, what, I was fascinated by the idea and that made me think of the tree that, 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 Remember the tree thing we had on our notebook? It's like I still have it. It's on my uh, it's on my computer. <laughs> nice. I don't. Mine is in the journal. It's in the journal on the, uh -huh. on the cover of the journal. So I was like, that's fascinating. How much connections this will make, and how much more dialogues or discussion will happen afterwards? Like either happen in words, or either just happen when when we listen to the previous episode, that will, yeah, that will be great. And I'm so glad you are doing this. Oh, me too. I'm really excited. Actually, yeah. I'm really, I'm really intrigued. And this might be a nice segue to, 
I'm intrigued to see how this episode will match with an episode that I'll be recording in a few weeks. I don't know what that conversation will be like yet, but uh, the book that one of my future guests has, has picked is, is kind of like a book of fairy tales or like a book of uh, children's stories. And, oh, um, nice. and so, so I, one of the things that I was really intrigued by in the Matthews book in particular was the way that he talks about the importance of children's literature. And I guess that I just don't feel like when I read these books, I feel highly underread in the children's literature area. Like maybe I just didn't read those books as a kid. Like, I don't know. I didn't read Frog and Toad. I didn't read C.L. Lewis. I didn't read like <laughs> Morris the Moose and like all this kind of stuff. But these questions, the way that he describes these philosophical questions that the books are taking up, I was just so fascinated by it. And I was like, I want to go read all these books because they sound fascinating. I never read Alice in Wonderland, Wizard of Oz, you know, all those stories. Did you read those books growing yes, up? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so I, yes. There's, like, there's like a whole world that I'm totally not aware of in my reading life because I never read any of that stuff. That's interesting. Can I ask you why you never read it? I don't know. I mean, I think that when I was growing up, when I was a young kid, I read, I read like Lord of the Rings. I, I read a lot of, uh, we had these like Little House on the Prairie books that I read. I read like all the Laura Ingalls Wilder stuff. Of course, I grew up in the Midwest. So that was like kind of a staple thing. And then, you know, just other books that showed up on the way I really got into reading was through things like Book It and these like book reading contests in elementary school. But there were certain books that were on there. And we just never had any of those books that I now see are so staple to the way that people think about these topics, but like, yeah. You know, so, so like, again, like something that blew me away when I was reading it in the Matthews book was when he was talking about like in the textual copy of the wizard of Oz, right. The actual L Frank Baum story, not the movie version that like the tin man becomes the tin man because he actually has his living body replaced by pieces of tin. And it raises these questions. And I thought, oh, Donna Haraway, the cyborg manifesto, when are we real? When are we not real? Like that whole thing. I was like, what a profound set of questions. I didn't even know that about that story. Because in the movie, the Tin Man is just the Tin Man. Mm -hmm. I think that's very interesting. Not only you, many, you know, I don't like the concept of adults or child but right i feel like many grown-ups don't read picture books don't read children literacy because they feel like that's for kids that the, the that's kind of the level is too low is you know i have way much more knowledge to read more complicated stuff but the thing they didn't real or were not aware of is in those great children's books we have the the world's best illustrators spend months or years 
to just have this, you know, one little book. And also our writers spend months or years to write this story, which probably only has 300 words. <laughs> and it, it makes sense to the kids. And also it makes sense to us, to the, to the grown-ups. It's just because it's so, so, how to say, well-written in the simple yet philosophical way that you can get so much more from it. Like one of my favorite picture books. While you were talking about picture books, I was just so excited. I just were like, oh yes, I have a whole bunch of picture books that I want to share with you. Like one of my favorite um, is uh, The Fabric by Leo Leone. Um, that book is so fascinating. What it's is it called? Fabric. Frederick? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that book is talk about, you know, a bunch of rats. They are a family and, you know, usually in autumn, they will collect a bunch of food to get ready for winter, right? But this little mouse and his name is Frederick. He doesn't do all those labor work. He just like walking around, appreciating the sun, looking at the leaves, enjoying the colors and all that. But, you know, amazingly, his family members didn't blame him or didn't complain about him not doing job and that's him. He's doing his job. And when winter comes, they started to enjoy the food. They have been collected by, by the middle of winter, their food are almost out and everyone was kind of starving. And this Frederick just started to share the colors he saw, share the poem he wrote and share the sunshine and share those beautiful views with his family members and his family members had a great time even with lacking of food. And mm. they realized, oh, Frederick is a poet. He doesn't do the labor work. He collected colors, he collected words, mm. he collected poems. And I was like, that's what we talk about here. That's what we're dreaming of. But in, the, in one picture book, it talked about that in such a beautiful way that kids from age two to people at age 90 can't understand. And because it's such a short story that I can easily tell you, or you can easily read a book in five minutes, but that will be in your mind for a long time. I just feel like that's very fascinating. And that proves another, you know, my favorite, one of my favorite quote, less is more. It's such a short story, but it just stays in your mind. And whenever you feel kind of, obsessed with materials or being too much addicted to the modern world system, I think of Frederick, I was like, why cannot be Frederick? Why, can, why cannot we appreciate of the meaning of the color of those poetic aspects of life? Well, and so I bet, I mean, it, in an interesting way or a way that you might, if it goes well for you, you might, when you go on this detox that you're about to go on, you might start to like see things differently than what the social media space has forced you into thinking, right? Because if you really, if you really have to not be on your phone and you really do it consciously, you will start to notice things that are different 
that you wouldn't notice if your nose was always stuck in the phone or if you're, if you're whatever. It's like, it, it's hard. It's just like, it's hard for us to remember now a, a time when we didn't have all of this crap, like even computers. Cause it's so recent and it just seems like it's all consuming, but I very much remember even in college, you know, we didn't have laptop computers when I was in college. You went to a computer lab, you know, or like, you know, you didn't have this kind of stuff. And so even things like um, noticing the leaves or noticing the way that like the light hits the leaves outside my window here or noticing little things about my dogs. You know, I've got these dogs and, you know, they're always doing little things that are just so fascinating in terms of the way they stretch or the way that they, their, their breathing patterns. I mean, we need that stuff. Poetry is like a big, poetry is like a big thing in my life this year. I've read a lot of poetry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love it. I I started to listen to to a poem um student channel this year um just to have you know less words and more imagination in my thinking because mm-hmm. so often especially in academia you read so much either for teaching or for lessons for classes it's it's just like too much words and too much too much words, not necessarily to not necessarily a lot of inter- intellectual or wisdom in it. So I kind of kind of want to, you know, be distant a little bit so I can still have the space, the imagine that word I never be able to say imagination. Imagine no, the objective, uh, objective of it. Imaginative. Imaginative, yeah. Imaginative, uh-huh. <laughs> okay. The, oh, okay. That imaginative space is just like I need to, you know, to to be a little bit away from it, so I have my own space to think about my own ideas. Because no matter how much books we read, how many books we read, we eventually have to digest it into our own, right? To make personal meanings with the books, and which is. Also back to the book that as Lipman talks about is like the purpose of having the dialogue is fascinating. Everything we talk about always comes back to the book. It does come back to the book. It does. <laughs> it always does. So he said, well, what? The purpose now of having the dialogue. Okay. The purpose of okay. having the dialogue. Okay. Having the dialogue. Well, I still don't remember what I'm going to say. Well, what I was saying. You were saying like, we were talking about imagination and poetry and language and how sometimes less is more. Oh yeah, so now I remember. So the purpose of having the dialogue, for example, you were teaching some theory, the anti-racist theory, or I'm teaching some important knowledge in the school curriculum, but the eventual point of having the dialogue is to one is to help the kids to form their own way or to get clarified about their own way of thinking like how Mm -hmm. they think about this topic 
in based on their personal experience and their mind. That is one important. You cannot just give them the theory and let them believe it. But the thing is to help them to clarify how they think of this and what is their opinion of this. And the second, um, the second purpose is to strengthen their understanding of the issues involved in their holding to the briefs they do hold. It's like, okay, you tell me you believe in this, then tell me your reasons. Then I'm going to question your reasons. I'm going to question your beliefs. If you truly believe in it, you will be able to defend your beliefs. So that is eventually become your understanding, your own belief. So I think those two goals or two purpose of dialogue is kind of different from what many people would think of. It's still based on the personal meaning making and the personal belief developing, but it's not a close end. It's based on the reflective thinking, the questioning that you strengthen your belief from your reasoning and from the reading and from the dialogue. I actually like, you know, the first thing that you said was this was about this idea of like, you know, they stress, Lippmann stresses throughout the whole book that the, the whole philosophy for children program is about helping children develop their own voice, their own way of thinking. He doesn't use voice. He says their own way of thinking. And mm -hmm. that's your third quote that you had pulled out from page 67. I wonder, do you have it if you would if you would read it, just to reiterate the, the point. Let me see the page. I have the document here. Okay. It's your third bullet point. Yeah. So the quote is, notice that we do not say, say what can be done to give their lives meaning, rather the only meanings that ch children will respect are those that they can themselves derive from their own lives, not those that are given to them by others. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so often, especially when we teach our students, by seeing students, people usually consider students as, a, you know, need to learn from the course, from the lesson, and we teachers kind of sometimes are kind of eager to give them what they need to know, to give them the theory, to give them the definition. But in order to make the meanings of the concept we are learning, the theory we are learning, the knowledge we are learning is to let them build these personal meanings to themselves. I think that is very important. And also dialogue happens here again it's just like you cannot just as how we do the traditional lecturing that you just expect the students to get it or understand it and accept it all of a sudden it's through dialogue that the oh this one more thing to talk about is like we cannot just expect our students either it's college students or younger students can just all of a sudden understand the reading or the writing we have been given to them because mm. they need they need a procedure it's like even like we talk we have a topic and you ask them to write an essay and we expect them to turn in the writing the next day 
many students feel like, okay, that's fine in class. But right after class, it was like, wait, what I'm going to do? What I can write? I have nothing in my mind. I think that the dialogue part, if can fit in after those assignments, will make them to kind of unpack the essay or the topic a little bit more to build more personal connections with them. And then after class, they will definitely have at least one or two points to start with. I think that's a transformative process that we often ignore if we don't have enough time, but which is, but that is in, important for the students to build personal meanings to the test. Yeah. Or like, I think that another way you can do that is if you build, like if you're working on assignments specifically, if you uh, build a, a, a large assignment into steps, and then if you consider the steps to be part of a dialogic process between you and the student or between, or this is where we have peer learning, you know, like, oh, exchange papers and talk. I, I think like one of the things that the book made me think about more was that you know, we should use those opportunities if we build that into a classroom space to ask the student more questions rather than just see it as a corrective towards a larger process, right? Mm -hmm. So it like helping them to see like, well, what do you really mean when you say this word? Or what is your larger point? And what evidence do you have to support it? And then if they don't say, if they counteract it with something later, to say, is this consistent with what you were thinking before? Or if you're setting up an alternative argument, how are you structuring the writing or the verbalizing of that statement in a way that helps someone to see that you're setting up an alternative so mm -hmm. that you're saying it might be this way or the other way? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, yeah, lots of things that we could kind of uh, think about here. I, I, I wanted to, I wanted to ask you about something in the Lipman book that I thought was pretty interesting. Uh, what do you mean interesting? How do you define interesting? How do I, I know, well, <laughs> You know what's funny about that is that actually I say that to my students all the time. In fact, I say to my students, they're not allowed to use the word interesting. So I'm going to cut that out. <laughs> so let me, let me, uh, something that piqued my interest mm. toward the end of the Lippmann book has to do with their discussion about how a philosophy for children program can help us to develop a model of moral and ethical education. And I'm fascinated and piqued about that conversation because I think we don't spend a lot of time in modern education talking about morality or ethics 
my own personal belief on this is this is part of why our society is falling apart is because we aren't teaching people how to think in a reasoned fashion about the decisions that they're making. This is most clearly evident in our politics, but it's evident in a lot of other places. So, you know, there's this quote on page 157 in the Lippmann book that I pulled out uh, and on page 166. I, I kind of want to read both of them, but um, this has to do with moral and ethical implications of this work. Mm -hmm. the, the, mm -hmm. the first quote is, they talk about, quote, to think of human individuals as innately good or bad, or of society as innately good or bad, is to foreclose all possibility of determining through inquiry what is responsible for each situation as it stands and how it can be improved, end quote. It seems to me that one of the things these books is trying to get us to do in education and just even if we're raising children or in our life in general is to understand both context and also to try to split us out of the dualities of our thinking. That we, we always think of things as good or bad. We always think of things as right or wrong, black or white. But philosophy forces us to sort of think about these things in a more nuanced way. What's good in one situation might be bad in a different situation. What's right in this situation is wrong in that situation. Or what's right for me might be wrong for somebody else. And, you know, getting children and other people to be able to think about the complexity of that is very difficult. It requires us to understand philosophy. What do you think about that? Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm so glad you brought out this point. And these, like the issue of morality and ethics has been bothered me this year, only in the previous few years. Oh, I bet. And I even... Okay, so it's like I even start to question about my own value system. Like I start mm. to reflect on my own and I start to reflect on the word common sense. And I was like, am I wrong for the common sense I have been believing? Why all of a sudden you just cannot agree with anything with the society or with the majority? I was like, yeah so what's going on so that's why i specifically went back to read this the last two sessions about morality and ethics and i try to find some clue and or try to help me to re-understand or to re rethink about how we can help our citizens i would say not only students to develop this sense of morality or to have your you know your ethical um thinking way of thinking so i think in this book what lipman pointed out is the more moral education has been could be amplified in philo philosophy for children practice through two ways the logical thinking and the effective thinking 
mm. either one, you know, they are equally important. You cannot address one over the other and mm -hmm. you cannot ignore one over the other. And I think that is very important for us to know because more often when people mention about philosophy or philosophical discussion or philosophical debating, they go to the logical side, which is important, right? But also there's the effective side, the people's emotions, experiences is equally important in think about it. And in doing so, I think he has a few suggestions I found very interesting or very helpful for me to understand how that be really practicing in, in, in the classroom or in education that on page 172 to 175, like he has a few suggestions, but one thing I feel very important is the concept of consistency. It's like, for example, he gives a few examples about how to the teach how to teach the kids don't lie. It's like you don't only just tell them don't lie, but right. you talk with them, and also we practice this in our action, and also the kids will be constantly be reminded or be questioned or be reasoned like is this what is what you say and what you do be consistent with each other because once you lie you're going to have a bunch of more lies to make this not be found out by people or once you lie you're going to have you're going to like rearrange the things which is not consistent from what you you know personally would like to do so they said this consistency is very important in moral education instead of telling the kids or the people what is right to do because we don't know what is right. In, in the process of building the moral system is keep using your reasoning and keep thinking about whether this is consistent or not. And after that, the kids, or we, we will have our basic thinking system and we'll be able to have the thinking capacity to think about the future controversial issues and to make our own moral decision or moral choice. Yeah, I, I found it to be really, I'm glad you brought up the thing about the affective because that does come in so strongly. And, you know, along those same lines, Littman and them seem to suggest that it's it's not well two things really that i want to say here one is it's not pronouncements that are going to get people to be morally or ethically correct it's only experiential learning that will help them and and part of that experiential learning might be dialogue as we've been talking about through our entire conversation uh giving them the experience of understanding what it means to lie will then help them to understand what the ramifications of that are. You know, you point out rightly that the last few years have really tested our understanding of what I would say public morality is and public ethics. And there's, you know, there's another great part in the book where Lippmann and them are talking about 
how do, how do children understand the concept of freedom? And when I was reading that section, I was just thinking about everything that's happened in 2020, because what do they say? They say, children understand freedom as, well, freedom is the right for me to do whatever I want to do, right? It's, it's my individual autonomous agency that is freedom. But a more, another way to think about freedom is to think, no, it's what can I do that also impacts people in a way that's positive or that has the least detrimental impact on other people in my society. And so I was thinking, as I was reading that, right, it's not that one way of thinking about freedom is more advanced because, you know, they, they say there's no such thing as like an advanced stage. There's just perspectives on issues. And freedom is a word that has perspective. But I was just thinking about all of the debates we've been having this year and all of the terrible controversy around, for example, wearing a mask. And you know how people really think that wearing a mask is an infringement on their personal autonomy and their own personal freedom. And I kept, and how that's hard for me to cognize in my head, or it's hard for me to affectively think about that. But I, and so I kept thinking, Shofei, I was like, okay, is this like these people don't have any other way of seeing the world outside of their own autonomous self? And this is, you know, this is one of the things that the book just made me keep thinking about. And their solution to it, of course, is literature. <laughs> they say, which I think is genius, right? I mean, it is just great. They're like, you can't, this was my other quote that I was going to read when we started this section, mm. right? It's on page 166. So right around this same section, Lippmann and them say, quote, we cannot expect to encourage children to respect persons unless we acquaint them with the full implications of the concept of a person. And this requires philosophy, nor can children be expected to develop an ecological love of nature without some philosophical understanding of what nature is. The same thing is true of terms such as society, thing, wealth, truth, and countless other terms and phrases which we constantly employ, end quote. So they go on to say, exposing children to literature and vast amounts of literature is the only way that we can actually do this and then engaging them in dialogue about, okay, well, how can we understand a person how can we understand freedom? How can we understand society? How can we understand wealth from multiple perspectives? And I just thought, this is everything that's missing from our society right now. This, this book was written in 1980. Yeah. And here we are 40, 41 years later, practically. We, did we do it? I mean, it's like, we didn't do it. I, don't I mean, know. I just, yeah. we, we not even didn't do it. We probably, what I feel right now is we probably did it earlier, even during the 90s or the early 20s, early 21st century, we probably did it, but now we don't do it. We are more into a single perspective of thinking they're huge concepts, like what is equal, what is justice, what is freedom, as you just said. But that's not the way how we approach a concept. 
as you know, Lipman talked about at the beginning and Deleuze and Guattari and Derrida talks about concept. That is not how we approach those big concepts in our life or in the human society. It's like the reason why we keep talking about freedom, talking about justice, talking about time, talking about you know, those big death, talking about those big concepts is because they have a, how do you say it? They have a, um, what's the word? They have a becoming life. Mm. They are not just a concept there for you to find one definition and close your mind and just do it that way, follow it that way. Even, even what you followed supposed to be right during your situation, but that's not how we approach concept or how we approach the big topics in our, in our society. The meaning of the concept is it will be able to um, generate more ideas, more way of thinking, or as you just said, multiple perspective to think of this. Like, as you said, the freedom, easily we can, freedom is we can do whatever we want to do or go a, a step further is we choose not to do what we don't want to do which is already hard in our life mm -hmm. but further further then we talk about freedom and responsibility um like i talked with with young kids they came out with the easiest example is we play toys together i cannot play all the toys because then if I have all the toys, he cannot play and he's not going to play with me. So when you have freedom, you need to have your responsibility. That's when freedom works. I was like, genius, brilliant. The kids know it. Can we, can we, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. So then how do they lose that though? That's what I don't understand is that if, if kids know these things, Oh, I don't know. It that's that's what stresses me out about thinking about these things is I'm like we know that kids understand how to do this and then we we suck it out of them or we like it just it dis I, I don't know, it dissipates. Do you think it is related to our social structure? Like how we uh you know Started from when they when they go to school, we started to pay more attention to productivity, to efficiency, which you know really reduced the complexity of our thinking and of the human beings because we only want to be productive, we only want to be competitive, and want to be efficient. That you don't have the time to take care of the connections, the complexity of your life, the, uh, the affective of, of our mind of, of thinking. Well, I mean, that, was, that was something about Lippmann's book that I, I would like to pick your brain about that. Because as I was reading, it seems to me that these philosophical questions that they want us to have children ponder, and all of us really, requires a great deal of patience and time and relies on a certain willingness to accept that there's not a readily available or easily achievable answer. And I'm all for that. You went to graduate school with me. 
you know that I hate easy answers <laughs> and that yes. I'd much rather just sit around all day and ask questions than come up with some kind of answer. Um, but the part of that book that did sort of rub me the wrong way was this part where they do try to make this program that they're discussing into some objection, uh, um, objective, measurable set of outcomes where they relate it to, and this is partially in the appendix, but it shows up in the text also, mostly at the front end of the text, where they talk about, you know, oh, this, this program, when you, when you do it, when you use these novels, when you teach children logical reasoning and affect and dialogue and all, create a community of inquiry and all of the great things that they talk about, leads to children having higher reading scores leads to children having uh, you know, better math achievement, uh, more cooperation, all these types of things. It, that sort of like, I get why they were doing that, but I wonder if in an indirect way they counteracted their argument by putting that stuff in at the end because they were trying to justify what they were doing by coming up with these scientific, metrics that I, and I just thought, uh, this is 1980. This is right at the like start of the whole assessment and accountability metric movement crap that we still are dealing with today, as you mm -hmm. know so much. How did yeah. that part of the book strike you? That's a great question. And that's something I have been kind of, you know, um, how to say balance in my real practice of doing philosophy for children. Because, mm -hmm. you know, I do philosophy for children with, um, well, I did, uh, I did once uh, here at, you know, at the LSU when I did my grad school. And now I'm like continually teaching those like short-term program or short-term course with um, Chinese students. And, you know, as this area is growing bigger, and they started to have their standard or their specific procedures and how you think. For me, it's ridiculous. You cannot have a specific procedure and you cannot just follow you know, one way or the other. Um, and as you said, like when they talk about the outcome or the advantage of doing philosophy for children and they talk about, and even in the philosophy department, they said most of the philosophy major students will be higher scores in GRE and GMAT and all that. So you should, you should choose philosophy. I feel sad how they attract students that way. But um, first I want to say is philosophy for children as I said, as I view it as a way of thinking should not be completely be isolated from the society or from the reality. So it's a way of thinking. I believe like we should learn to, you know, to think and to better practice in our society. So I'm not like completely against when it says philosophical children is will improve your reading comprehension or will improve your specific skills. I'm not specifically against that because I do believe those kind of training or those kind of practice will definitely help you because now our ELA teacher complained that 
my students don't understand. They don't. They they cannot really comprehend, um, like longer paragraph. And my 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 math teacher complained that there are only two sentences in this math problem. My kids said they don't understand. They don't understand the logic or whatever in it. Mm. So by saying that, I'm not completely against it. Um, you know, one way or another, if, if you if you want to survive in the society, you kind of have to find some connections to what's really practicing in the society, right? But I also think the the good way, like why I still feel like philosophy for children is important, is while it helping the students with those skills, it also gives you a way to step back to keep the critical thinking to ask the big questions or to think about the concept one more time while you, we, are, we are practicing it the same as time right we all follow our schedule we all follow our agenda but the kids who have a more philosophical awareness will ask what is time is the time we are practicing right now the real time. So I, I can see like, you know, it's not completely be like in this, in this uh, standardized testing or outcomes. It also gives you the tool to be aware of what we are practicing. And also in my own practice, I'm not really following the procedures of how to do philosophy for children. I'm kind of like, um, build my own way with depends on the children or the students we have um, because I feel like when I talk about their what is time with younger kids the conversation is completely different than their um, older kids and to be honest it's more exciting to talk with the younger kids because they talk about you know all the different kind of where you can find time and they give me a piece of leaf and they give me some picture of their parents with the wrinkles and all that I was like oh that's amazing and while their older kids is like clock um deadline and all that you know it's just like I I build my own way of how to practice it with different children I have I think partially due to the philosophical thinking I have been practiced, it just make me more aware of, you know, the something out there and my personal practice of the meaning I built for myself and for my children. That's well, I, I want to ask you about the time thing because I want to ask you about your children's book. So you've written a children's book called What is Time? Yes. What is the book about? Yeah, the book is about what is time? <laughs> <laughs> so my, you know, my thesis for my philosophy major was about time. What well, is more about, you know, a, a philosophical discussion based on um, Henry Bergson, the um, French philosopher. Mm -hmm. And also, we always we talk a lot about time and how to be slow, how to live in that slowness and how to live in the stillness. And I just feel like this is such an important concept. And also, the more we reflect on the clock or the linear time, I start to think about 
um, since when we only consider the clock time as time and stop questioning. And then I think about the children, I was like, I believe their way of their thinking of time is different. So I started to have this philosophical dialogue during my philosophy for children salon with them. And it's fascinating how they approach time before the teachers or the parents taught them how to read the clock time. So that kind of inspired me and I decided to write this uh, story that understand time from different perspectives, um, from the trees perspectives, from the sunrise sunset perspectives, mm. from the animals perspectives, from the busy animals perspectives or from the lazy, the so-called lazy animals perspectives, what is time? And just, for, just to provide a platform for the children and their parents or the teachers to talk about time in a wider way rather than the first lesson is to teach you how to read the clock. I want to inspire them from the beginning before we, we push them to accept one way of the time. So tell us, uh, tell us a way that you thought about time or that children might think about time from say the perspective of a tree or an animal. Um, so there's one, well, the, the children came out multiple ways. They wrote poem about time and they, they said, look at the dust on the side of the window. Time passed by from there and the trees turn yellow and comes back to green and time passed by from there. And they also talk about uh, when they forget about time. It's like when I'm playing, when I'm happy, I don't remember time until my parents um, tell me when to go and I hate that. So they said, if you don't tell me what time is, time can now be existing in my life because when I play, when I'm happy, I, I forget about time. Mm -hmm. And they also talk about what time brought to them. They are very aware of that the parents are older than them and the wrinkles, but they don't consider that as a bad thing. They just feel it's, uh, it's different. And they also can tell from their small shoes to bigger shoes and the pictures of them being a baby to now, they just think time is so fascinating. Time means change, time means growing, time means different. Hmm. Well, it's very intriguing to me, the time question, because I, I did a study last year or I, well, it seems like last year, I did a study earlier this year right when COVID hit, I quickly designed a photo elicitation study and I recruited student college students from across the country. Uh, and they were, you know, I gave them eight prompts about things to think about. And I asked them to take a picture for each prompt or multiple pictures. And then we met and we talked about uh, these pictures and a picture that kept coming up was people were like many students took pictures of clocks, alarm clocks, um, things. And, 
And it was in response to like, what has been the most dramatic shift? And the shift is that people don't, the, the start of the pandemic made people feel like they lost all sense of time because suddenly time made no sense, right? It's like, we will be in a pandemic in perpetuity perhaps. So what does time mean in the middle of a pandemic? How does the school day differ? If you're not going to work, if you don't have a place to be and a place to go back to, what happens to time, all this kind of stuff. Um, so I just, I think that that's so interesting because we, so much of education and so much of our lives are predicated on this strict linear time. And when you try to take that away from people or when you disrupt it, it causes, adults at least, it causes them to become frenetic. They panic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they were all, they were all panicked about this. And I was like, it's really okay. Like, you know, you have, or, or a lot of them would say, well, I have so much more time now because there's not, there's nothing for me to do, right? There's no activities, there's no concerts, there's no shows, there's no nothing. I have so much more time all of a sudden. So then I would be like, well, what are you going to do with that extra time? And they, they, they didn't know. Anyway, I just find that to be very interesting. And I, it, it makes me think that they, that maybe a philosophical discussion about time would have helped people or many issues would have helped many people through many aspects of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I'm so glad that that quote is so common and so powerful. I have so much more time now, but you know, based yeah. on my research or based on the philosophers I love, like Henry Burson, he believes time is personal experience. Time is your experience. And think about it. If you don't experience that time, you don't live that time. Mm. So think about all the busy times that we are doing, we are working for the others. We just get those tasks done. Those times, we don't have personal experience in it, don't have much in it. So after a day, by the end of the day, we don't feel accomplished. We feel tired because there's no personal experience in it because we didn't live in those times. So when your student said, I have so much more time right now, but I don't know what to do, those time is not their time if they don't know what to do. It's only the time you experience is your time. And that's why I, I'm so glad I made the decision to de-social media <laughs> to experience the time so I can have the time or I can live in the time. So that's, that's the major point in my thesis and also the major point Burson tried to argue is time is your experience. Sometimes we feel based on if we use the clock time as the, as the standard, sometimes we feel time goes faster. Sometimes we feel time goes slow. 
that's all about our personal experience, right? So the clock there is like a ruler, but what's really going on is how we experience it. So time is slow sometimes, time is faster sometimes, time is happier sometimes, it's peaceful the other time. That is time. The, the standard evenly divided clock number is clock. <laughs> it's not time. <laughs> <laughs> or I think about geologic time or these questions that came up in the book where it was either the Matthew, it, it was probably the Matthews book, but where they were talking about the concept of infinity, which mm. infinity can be a time concept, but it can also be a concept related to space um, or, or place or other things, right? And I think that there was that really fascinating dialogue about, well, I don't want to think of the universe as infinite because if I think of the universe as infinite, there's no way for me to put myself in a place because if it's constantly expanding, then what this place is that I'm in or this time that I'm in doesn't make logical sense. There's no reason to it mm. type of thing. Mm. But remember, logical thinking and the affective. The affective, yeah, the affective. Are equally important. But so often we use logical thinking and reasoning as our only standard, only standard to determine whether this thing is worth to do, is valuable or is not. So logically we feel like we we don't have a fixed spot or position. But when, when, we, when you feel ourselves, we feel it. I'm here, right here, right now, breathing, talking with you. Oh, In I the think, time. Yeah, but how do you like, how do you uh, help people, children or adults to think about, like, let's just take that, that example of, of the child trying to think about what would it mean if the universe truly was infinite, right? Mm. And, or the adult. You know, I, I think one of the points that they're trying to make about why adults don't think about these things is probably because sometimes in thinking the logic of a question, the affective response is like fear, right? So it's like, it is very scary if you're logically thinking about a problem like infinity, even as an adult, you, would, you might actually make yourself scared about what it would mean if there was no such place or if the, play, if the space and place of like this thing that I'm experiencing right now is continuously shifting in one direction or another because the universe is constantly expanding one direction or the other. That can be a scary thing because then you start getting into these larger philosophical questions of, well, does that mean that I'm here? Does that mean that I'm a real thing? <laughs> am I breathing? Am I, what am I, right? It, am I moving through space in a way different than I think that I'm moving through space? Uh, all of these types of questions that sort of bring us back to 
Tim's question at the beginning. How do we know <laughs> that this isn't just a dream? Yeah, yeah. So I, I was in the stage like asking all the questions you just asked, and because theoretically I know there are linear time and nonlinear time, and practically I'm following the linear time, right? So I'm asking what I'm doing, what should I do? I had no clue, but my children, my students, give me the answer. That's fascinating because when I started that topic during that session. I didn't know where we are going because I honestly don't have the answer. I just want to introduce them this nonlinear time, but unfortunately, they already know it. <laughs> 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 so then you think as a teacher, darn it! <laughs> right, but when I ask them, like, well, do we still need the clock time or do we still need the linear time? They said yes. And I said, "How? It's like you know, we still need time. If we need to take the airplane, if we need to take the train, we still need the time." But but he's like, "But most of the time, when I'm playing, when I'm reading, I'm enjoying myself. I don't want time." I said,、mm -hmm. "So how do you balance?" He said, "We need time when we need it. When we don't need time, when I want to enjoy it. So instead of so, what the kids need is what the kids said is." We still use the linear time when we need it. So we, instead of time occupiers, is like we choose when we follow the linear time and when to have the balance to enjoy our experience, the nonlinear perspective. The kids said we need to have more authority of the balance between linear and nonlinear time instead of. Let the linear time occupying our schedule and agenda.、Mm. I found that is brilliant. Like I know there's no perfect solution. We we will still need to follow the the deadlines, the whatever. But what we can do is, I decided to not use social media for two weeks. That's me trying to you know to take the the um. The active part, rather than be slaved by time,、um, when I can, I think that remind the kids give me was so inspiring. And、uh, of course, they said it in their ways, like I only need it when I only need it when I need it. But <laughs> right, <laughs> <laughs> I only need it when I need it. <laughs> like so many things in life, really. Yeah, because、oh. I don't want to fall into people. People usually consider the philosophical discussion is just like is a forever going on thing that is kind of not really to practice. But I think it it is. It's like the concept we are thinking about is always related to the problems. Otherwise, the concept is meaningless. Without the problems, and think about all the concepts we have been talking about, and all the concepts we are fascinated about, they are all related to the real problems in the world. So I think that's the meaning of the philosophical thinking, because it just helps us to to think, to reflect, and to practice. It's not only in our mind; it's also in our practice. Philosophy is about everyday life, in my opinion.
Uh, yeah. Well, and that's why their their statement that you know you need to make the the philosophical program relevant to their experience, not what you want it to be, but what do they find important, and mm-hmm. then use that as the building block to ask the philosophical question. Yeah, is really, you know, they they have that paragraph or something somewhere towards the beginning of the book, Lippmann and all, where they say you know, don't tell them that Socrates thought this and Derrida thought this. And, you know, that's not what teaching children philosophy is. Teaching children philosophy is teaching them, as you said, a way of thinking, Mm -hmm. a way of being in the world. Yeah. 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 If we have any parents as our listener or, you know, K to 12 teachers, I really want to say that don't be don't be that uh, eager to introduce the children, the big philosophers' names. Start with their own questions. Start their own questions are the questions the philosophers have been thinking of for thousands of years. But the, the children are already thinking of them. We just need to continue the dialogue talk to them. I think that's more important than introduce them. Um, Aristotle has think about this. Heidegger has talked about this. No, the kids, our kids are thinking about them now. That's a great quote. I'm going to put it in the front part of the episode. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> are there any other um, things that we didn't talk about that you feel really moved or passionate about wanting to make sure that we get onto the recording? I think we talked more than what I thought of, which is the beauty of the dialogue. If I have to add one more thing, but we already talked about this, I do want to share how much I love picture books or children's literacy. And one of my favorite book for my whole life, I know it's hard for people who read a lot to choose one book. I mm. never had that problem. Mm-hmm. My favorite book for my whole life so far, and I believe it will be in my future as well, is The Little Prince. It's interesting to me because I, I remember talking about this in graduate school with you. Mm. I didn't change, right? (laughs) And when I invited you onto the podcast, I thought for sure that was the book you were going to choose. I said, oh, Shofei's going to choose The Little Prince. But you didn't. um, And that's great. Uh, Why is that your favorite book? It's a Um, philosophy book. You think it's a children's philosophy book? Not only that, first, there are so many, um, you know, ways of thinking. It's just like, it's so back to the nature of the thing rather than the socialized institutionalized system. Like at the beginning, when the little prince asked the pilot to draw a little shape and the pilot tried one times and two times 
because his drawing is not that good. And eventually he draw a little box. He said, here's your ship. And the little prince said, is he sleeping in the box? The pilot said, yes. And the little prince said, is he really small? And the pilot said, yes. You know, when the kids believe there's a sheep in the box, everything just makes sense. And that is the beauty of, and also the huge difference between the kids and the grown-ups is kids believe, we don't believe. Kids believe. So think about all the things we do. When we believe, we're more immersed and we enjoy our lives way much more when we believe. And it's all about belief. Like Christmas is coming. And the other day, I just uh, saw a short video. It was by the, um, the World Health um, Health Organization. They're the director of it. And she's giving an announcement to all the kids in the world. It's like, uh, there's some important message I want you to know. And um, that Santa is flying in the air. So he is... Um, amused to the COVID-19 and I even had a chance to chat with him. He's doing well and so does Mrs. Klaus and they both are very busy packing the gifts and all that. Um, but I do want you to know that please be social distance with Santa comes. We still need to be aware of that, but they are doing well. Santa is vaccinated and he will be able to deliver the presents. I was like, such a sweet message. Like while we're during the pandemic, they still have their, the mind to create that sweet space, the dream for our kids. I just feel like that's so beautiful. It's all about belief. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I, I had read a story that Dr. Fauci had, um, had gone on TV or something and said that he had personally vaccinated Santa Claus against the um the COVID right yeah so <laughs> now <laughs> I'm not trying to be a killjoy here but me I always think about that I go well if it's two doses taken four weeks apart and it just got approved by the FDA this week then that means that Santa's not really fully vaccinated. <laughs> but no, no. <laughs> but good enough. Good enough for Christmas. So <laughs> no, I just I just thought uh, I'm I'm always the uncle who ends up saying something like that at Christmas, right? You're that bad <laughs> uncle who ruined the dreams. Yes, I ruined the dream. I'm like, well, logically that doesn't make sense because the FDA just approved it last week. So no, I'm kidding. I mean, uncle Peyton, remember, <laughs> logic is em affection is important. Affection is important too. I as know. Logic. Affect. 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 I know. This is another area of life that I need to get better at is affect. <laughs> so I get it. I will punch you if I was next to you right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it's been great joy, uh, great fun to talk to you. Um, I really enjoyed the books and they made me think a lot and they'll make me think a lot for many days to come. 
uh, well into the future. I might even get to use some of this in a paper I'm writing, which is going to be amazing. Oh, nice. So, what paper are you writing? Well, I, like I said at the beginning of our conversation, I was really drawn to the stuff about wonder. And actually at ASH, a couple weeks ago, our big higher ed conference, I was on a me and two other colleagues from a different from two different institutions, we put together a panel on inciting wonder in graduate student education and the ways that we're doing that. And one of the ways that I do it is by using literature. I, I build fiction into my courses. Uh, and the aim of the paper is to try to get people in higher education to think about why that might be a more effective way of helping early career researchers to think about the questions that they want to ask because it taps into a different way of thinking than just like reading empirical research articles and trying to figure out what the gap is right mm -hmm. so um so I, I use in the paper i use these two examples of these two different books that i've used and what are, the, what are the parts of the book that I try to get students to hone in on to ask a different set of questions? So without getting too much into the weeds on it, you know, like in, in one book in particular, this book called Real Life by Brandon Taylor, uh, the main character in the book, he vomits a lot. So, I talk to, you know, I try to get students to focus in on the vomit. Hmm. What does the vomit mean? Why is the vomit important? And why would we think about the vomit as the question that we might ask, for example, in a dissertation? And then mm -hmm. that, that question, you know, leads you in all kinds of directions. Or in the other book, Welcome to Braggsville, I focus in on a tree. There's a, there's, a, there's a tree and a scene that's very important. Most people aren't going to think about the tree. I want you to think about the tree and not the people. What does the tree make you ask that's different than if you were just focused on the characters, for example? So it's, mm -hmm. it's also partially about getting them to think about materiality and like, affective responses also so even though you think i'm not affective like i do think of affect quite a bit and so some of this stuff that they're talking about is is stuff that i'm grappling with in my doctoral studies classroom mm -hmm. i love it and lipman suggests like novels is great way literature is great way to exactly. do philosophical discussions stories too it just like give give their their participant a context like be distanced from the reality so they have a wilder a wild space to think differently or think more or ask bigger questions or better questions as i say yeah yeah i love it so this is all very helpful and i loved i loved the whole thing so i wish you good luck on your social media detox Thank you. I'm, I look forward to it. I actually feel excited. As, at the beginning, I mentioned I don't have much to hope for, for, for the future. But now I feel hopeful about this 
decision. I feel hopeful about the, you know, the rest of the weeks because I feel like I will have a completely different way to live in time. Yeah, go out of it, go out the rest of the year without thinking about all the zaniness that it was and center yourself in thinking about all the things it could be. Nice, thank you. And I wish you a peaceful holiday with a lot of joy and love. I wish you the same. Uh, I'm gonna stop the recording now.